Two questions for you before we, uh, before we get into today's passage. Here's the first question. Why is this passage in the Bible? Why is it there? Now, it's not a trivial question. Uh, to answer that question, also say the answer to that question matters greatly. It matters for you personally, and it matters for Kenilworth Community Church, and in no small way. It matters for whether KCC will still exist as a true church of God's people in two years' time, in 20 years' time, in 200 years' time, should the Lord tarry. But before I answer the question, I want you to see why I ask it in the first place. So, follow with me in your Bibles from Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And I'm going to paraphrase, but I'm going to leave something out and see how this reads to you. In fact, I'm going to leave out the whole of today's passage. So I'm going to read, or shall I say paraphrase, chapter 1, verses 21, 22, and most of 23. And then I'm going to jump to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Now listen carefully to just how logical, how coherent, how complete this sounds with this whole big section left out. So follow with me from chapter 1 verse 21 and I will paraphrase. You were once alienated from God, his enemies in fact, but now you have been reconciled to God through Christ. One day you will stand before the Father himself, holy and blameless and above reproach. If you stand firm in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, the gospel that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Now skipping ahead. So now continue to live your lives in him. Continue to walk in Christ Jesus as Lord. Continue rooted and established and built up in him, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, do you see how well that flows? I'm going to say it again, even simpler this time. You are now God's people, reconciled by Christ's blood shed on the cross. Stand firm in Christ then. Let nothing and nobody move you from the gospel of Christ. Live in Christ. Continue in Christ. And one day you will stand holy and blameless before the Father himself. Now why does Paul interrupt that magnificent flow of truth with these verses? Why are these verses there? I hope you at least see why we need to ask that question. Now let's answer it from the scriptures, from the context. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, God gives us a glimpse into his heart for us. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, prays that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. In other words, God wants you to grow in Christian maturity. And we've just read in chapter 2, that God wants us to live in Christ, being built up in him, strengthened in the faith. In other words, again, it is God's will for you that you remain in Christ and that you grow in Christ, that you grow in Christian maturity. Now hear what Paul says of himself and his fellow ministers in chapter 1 verse 28. 
Him, that is Christ, we proclaim. We, that is me, the Apostle Paul, and my fellow workers. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, that is you, and teaching everyone, that is you, with all wisdom, that we may present everyone, that is you, mature in Christ. So what does Paul say is the goal of his ministry? To present believers mature in Christ. God's will for you is that you grow up in Christian maturity. So why are these verses in the Bible? To tell you that God has ordained that the agency by which you stand firm in Christ and by which you grow in Christian maturity is the ministry of true ministers of Christ. I'll say that again and even simpler. These verses are in the Bible to tell you, Christian, that God has ordained that for you to grow in Christian maturity, you need a pastor. Now, in a minute, we'll dig into this passage and find out what the faithful ministry of a faithful minister looks like. And we'll do that under four headings. But let's not rush by the, just the bare fact that this passage is here. It's very tempting to think, well, God has saved me, and now all I need is Jesus. One day I'll go home to be with him. It's, it's all about just me and Jesus. It's very tempting to create a, a private, individualized spirituality in which I make my own way. I figure things out for myself. Yes, I'm part of a church, but I don't really need anybody to tell me what to do. I don't need to be taught. I know the answers already. Yeah, we may be in greater danger of this than the Colossians were. A highly educated congregation in a highly educated society that strongly resists authority and prizes independence. But the Bible will not allow it. God's appointed means for you to grow in Christian maturity is under the ministry of a faithful pastor. Uh, I have never met, and nor have you, and nor will any one of us ever meet, a mature and maturing Christian who is not under the ministry of a faithful pastor. It should strike you hard that in a book, the book of Colossians that is, in which essentially the whole message of the book is all the fullness of God dwells in Christ alone and all you need is Christ, that the Holy Spirit says by the scriptures to you, and the means by which you come to know Christ in all his fullness and remain in him and grow in him and work out all the fullness of his indwelling in your life is through the ministry of a properly appointed minister of Christ. I said there were two questions before we get into the text. The first question, why is this passage here? The answer to tell you, you need a pastor. And to tell you what the ministry of your pastor should look like. And then I think the second question becomes obvious. What should you be looking for in the man who comes to replace me here at KCC next year? Okay, now let's see what this passage tells us about this man and his ministry. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll look at this under four headings. First... The minister's authority. Second, the minister's message. Third, the minister's perseverance. And fourth and finally, the minister's love. 
So first, the minister's authority. If you look with me at verse 25, I became a minister, Paul says, by the stewardship or by the commission that God, that God gave me. Your pastor is God's appointed, commissioned steward of the gospel for your maturity. He is a servant of the church. He is a servant of the church, but under God's authority, on God's commission. Your pastor carries the authority of the appointment of God to serve the church by the ministry of the word. Now, he is to exercise that authority gently, not heavy-handed. As Paul wrote near the end of his life to a young pastor he had trained, Timothy, he wrote, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, correcting opponents gently, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The Lord's servant is to exercise his authority gently, but he is to exercise it. I remember uh, shortly after I arrived here, almost two years ago, we were still in the um, Kenworth Center, and James Midwinter came to preach for us. We were in Ephesians, I, I don't remember which passage, probably chapter 4, and um, he used the analogy. He said, the church is like a football team. And your pastor is the, the player coach. Some of you may remember that. He is a player coach. He is one of the team. He's not apart from. He is a player on the field. But he is the coach. Now, it's undeniable. We live in a culture that does not like authority. Professional, educated, successful, middle-class England is resistant to authority. And do not think that you are not affected by the air you breathe. Now, part of what it means for you to grow in maturity in Christ is to learn to submit to the authority Christ places over you in his household. Listen to what Paul says in another of his letters. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you who labor among you, he is a player on the team, he is one of you, and are over you, but he is also the coach. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them highly, very highly, in love because of their work. The writer to the Hebrews is more direct. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. True minister is commissioned by God for your Christian maturity. He is to exercise that authority gently as a father would over his children. But my children don't mistake gentleness for confusion about who's in charge. In this dynamic that the Lord has ordained, a faithful minister carries authority for your good. And part of your demonstration of growing maturity is your willingness to submit to that authority. Second, the minister's message. 
And again, chapter 1, verse 25. I became a minister of the church by the commission God gave me to make the word of God fully known or to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. The minister's commission, his stewardship, is, uh, is to a task to make known the word of God. Now, for Paul and the other apostles, that meant uh, to make known the fullness of what they had learned directly from Jesus himself or by direct revelation from the Holy Spirit and all of what that meant for growing in Christian maturity. For the faithful minister today, that means making known the fullness of who Jesus is and what his coming and his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension means as recorded in Holy Scripture. In the Bible. In other words, the minister's commission, the minister's authority, is to teach you Christ from the Bible. To teach you, as Paul says it in verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, what does that mean? We're more used to Paul's phrase, in Christ. So does this Christ in you mean something different? Well, not different exactly, but it is a different emphasis. Where is Christ right now? Well, he is right now at the Father's right hand. And so in Christ, united by faith to him, joined to him, Christians share his access to the Father. And we share in his victory over the principalities and the powers, even over death. That's what it means that we are in Christ. But... We do not obtain the benefits of Christ apart from the person of Christ. The benefits of union with Christ are obtained only in him and with him himself, together with his person. And so if we are in Christ by faith, then he is in us by his spirit. Because he lives in us by the Holy Spirit, we know we will one day possess the fullness of our salvation. Christ, who is in us, is in heaven, and so our hope is in heaven. Our hope of glory is sure. But Christianity is more than a hope. Even now it is Christ in you. Full salvation belongs to the coming day, but real salvation belongs to here and now. One day we will be free of the presence of sin, but we are already free of the penalty of sin. And we are daily being free from the pull of sin. The power setting you free from the pull of sin, the power sustaining you for the coming day is Christ in you. But the agency by which that power is ministered to you is the teaching of God's word. Now, we need to pause here and dwell on this for a minute. It is not your pastor's job to dispense a weekly set of spiritualized life hacks. It's not your pastor's job to entertain you. It's not even your pastor's job to engage you, whatever that means. It is your pastor's God-given commission to teach you who Jesus Christ is what he has done, what his incarnation and his life of perfect obedience means, 
what his sacrifice on the cross means, what his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession now at the right hand of the Father, his imminent return, what all those realities mean for you. It is your pastor's God-given commission to make known to you the fullness of what Christ in you, the hope of glory, means. It is your pastor's job to be the human agent by which God fills you up with spiritual wisdom and understanding, as Paul prayed earlier in the letter, so that you live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus, fully pleasing to him. It is your pastor's job to fill you up with truth, to enable you to stand firm to the end, to grow in Christ-likeness, to fortify you and equip you for the ministry God has entrusted to you until he comes again or until he calls you home. Now consider the example Paul sets for us in this. In almost every one of his letters, false teaching threatens the church more or less explicitly, but it's there. Paul is not nearly as concerned about hardship or persecution, about circumstantial suffering, as he is about false teaching, about lies, about error, about wrong doctrine, false beliefs, wrong thinking. And what is his pastoral strategy in all his letters? It is to show you how the truth of you in Christ and Christ in you applies. And he does it through rigorous, carefully reasoned, detailed, thorough, often highly complex arguments. Paul expects his, his audience to switch their brains on. If that is not your expectation of your pastor's teaching, if instead you want quick spiritualized life hacks, if you want light peppy sermons, the hot dog that took 60 seconds to prepare rather than the meal that took 20 hours to prepare, then you are not as far progressed on the road of Christian maturity as you might like to think you are. Okay, what have we seen so far? The minister has a commission from God to teach the church the word of God with authority for your maturity. That was point one and two. The minister's authority and the minister's message. Third, the minister's perseverance. Imagine two soldiers, the first uh, attending a formal banquet in his royal blue jacket with gold piping down the front across the bottom, gold knots on the cuffs, uh, gold shoulder cords, and the regimental badge on his right shoulder, a scarlet waistcoat with gold buttons, clean white shirt with a black bow tie, pressed black trousers, and black leather shoes polished to perfection. The perfect poster soldier, regal, inspiring, makes you want to sing, God save the Queen. Now imagine the second soldier, hurrying, partly limping across a field, staying low to avoid enemy fire, his uniform scruffy, dirty, partly torn, dried mud in his hair, dried blood on his clothes, hasn't shaved for weeks, hasn't slept for more than a few hours at a time for weeks, hungry, tired, his ears ringing from the perpetual noise of battle, his brief moments of rest, stolen by the painful memories of comrades fallen. 
This guy's not a poster soldier, he's a frontline fighter. Now, which one of those describes the pastor's ministry? Listen to the Apostle Paul. I have been often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked for a night and a day adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now, after all that, listen to what tops the list for him. And apart from all those things, there is the daily pressure on me of my concern for the churches. Paul was no poster soldier. He was a frontline fighter. Every faithful pastor is. That is the call to ministry. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said to him, join with me in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. And what tops the list of Paul's sufferings? Was it the whippings, all 195 of them? Was it the beating with wooden rods? Was it a night and a day adrift in the Mediterranean after yet another shipwreck? No, none of these. Top of the list of his sufferings was his concern for the churches. He even says it to the Colossians here in this passage. For your maturity, I toil, struggling with all the energy of Christ that he powerfully works in me. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Paul was no poster soldier. He was a frontline fighter, and every faithful pastor is. Be careful of the temptation to poster soldier ministry. All show and polish, all eloquence and slick sophistication, all social and cultural respectability. Some of you want a poster soldier pastor. Don't. What you need is a frontline fighter. What you need is a pastor who labors, who toils in teaching and in spiritual warfare. Remember, I have not ceased praying for you, Paul said earlier in the letter. I have not ceased praying for you. For your maturity. What you may ask, what is there to not cease praying for? I'm going to quickly just turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Sorry, not 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy. In the passage I read earlier where uh, Paul says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, etc. So that describes the nature of his ministry, but listen to what he's hoping for. Listen to the goal that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. There is a reality to spiritual warfare. There is a reality to deception. On the surface, the pastor's ministry is to be gentle, correcting opponents with gently, teaching gently, encouraging gently, being kind, not quarrelsome. 
But behind the scenes of what's visible, what's going on is a battle for your freedom from deception. I have not ceased praying for you, Paul says. I have not ceased praying for you. You need a pastor who knows how to persevere in the frontline fight for your soul, for your maturity. The Minister's Commission demands a perseverance, a fighting perseverance like no other. In the last sermon he ever prepared for a pastor's gathering, in fact he actually died before he delivered it, John Flavel, one of the Puritans, wrote, um, exhorting his fellow ministers to persevere, he, he wrote as follows, The labors of ministry will exhaust the very marrow from your bones, hasten old age and death. They are fittingly compared to the toil of men in harvest, to the labors of a woman in travail, to the agonies of soldiers in the dangers of battle. We must watch when others sleep. It's not so much the expense of our labors as the loss of them that kills us. It is not with us as with other laborers. They find their work as they leave it. Not so with us. Sin and Satan unravel almost all we do. The impressions we make on our people's souls in one sermon vanish before the next. How many truths we have to study, how many strategies of Satan and mysteries of corruption to detect, how many cases of conscience to resolve. We must fight in defense of the truths we preach, as well as study them to paleness and preach them into faintness. But well-spent head, heart, lungs and all, welcome pained breasts, aching backs, and trembling legs, if we can by all but approve ourselves Christ's faithful service, and hear that joyful voice from his mouth. Well done, my good and faithful service. Don't judge by how pretty a poster soldier your pastor is. Judge by his perseverance in the frontline fight for your maturity. Judge by his resolve to teach the word of God and not surrender to the pressure for spiritualized life hack sermons. Judge by asking his wife how many nights are passed with little or sometimes no sleep, wrestling in prayer for you. You don't need a poster soldier. You need a pastor who knows how to persevere in the fight for your maturity. The minister's authority... A commission from God. The minister's message, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The minister's perseverance as a frontline fighter for your maturity. And finally, fourth, the minister's love. Verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And again in chapter 2, verse 5. I rejoice to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul rejoices that he has the privilege of suffering for their growth in Christian maturity. And he rejoices in the evidence that they are growing in Christian maturity. Well, in Paul's mind, and in the mind and the heart of every faithful pastor, there is no greater good your pastor could wish you than your growth in Christian maturity. Your pastor wants your maturity more than he wants you to be successful at school or in business, more than he wants you to enjoy good health, more than he wants you to enjoy long life. There is no greater good that your pastor wishes you than your growth in Christian maturity. And for the privilege of suffering for your growth, Paul rejoices. 
and for the evidence of your growth, your pastor rejoices. But you only rejoice in the good of those you love. Your pastor loves you. But he loves for your maturity, not your indulgence. We began with two questions. Why is this passage here? And the answer, to tell you that you need a pastor. That is God's ordained means for your growth in Christian maturity. Second question, what are you looking for in the man who will take my place next year? The man who has been commissioned by God, in whom you recognize a God-given authority, a man to whom you will submit. A man who knows what it means to teach God's people God's word and who will not surrender to the incessant calls for hot dog sermons. Because the calls will be incessant and it is a surrender. A man who knows how to persevere as a frontline fighter for your maturity, who knows what it means to suffer and to toil and to struggle with all the energy of Christ at work in and through him for your maturity. A man who loves you enough to pastor you towards maturity and not to indulge you. And what will be the, what will be the fruit of such a ministry? Well, in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, Paul gives us a picture of that. Their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full understanding, sorry, of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ. Verse 4, I say this that no one will delude you with plausible arguments. I'm absent in body, but with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The fruits of such a ministry will be a people united in love to one another, standing firm in Christ, not swayed by false teaching, however plausible they may be. People who know who they are in Christ, who have the full assurance of Christ in you, the hope of glory people whose hearts are knit together in love, firm in their faith, living their lives together in good order. Let me pray. Father, we want to give you thanks for your word that instructs us, your word that teaches us your way. We give you thanks, Father, that for all that you have shown us here about the ministry of a faithful, a faithful pastor, it is ultimately by the power of Christ working in and through him that you achieve this. It is not the pastor's cleverness. It's not his natural gifting. It's none of that. It is you at work in and through him. Our trust is ultimately in you. But Father, would you help us to submit to and work with your ordained way of doing things. Father, this is what we want to see here at KCC. We want to see a church standing firm in faith. Good order characterizing all we do. 
We want to be a people who are full of the assurance of Christ in us, the hope of glory. We want to be a people whose hearts are knit together in love. We want to be all these things for your glory in and through us. Would you do it, Father? Would you do it by calling the right man here next to you and by helping the church to partner with him by submitting, by following his lead, by being players in the player-coach dynamic to your glory, Father. Amen.